Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are bringing classics to your door. We all love a bit of classics. So today we have Tim Whitmarsh with us, who is a classicist and a professor of Greek culture at the University of Cambridge. He's also a published author and has written books like Dirty Love, The Genealogy of the Ancient Greek Novel, and Local Knowledge and Micro-Identities in the Roman Greek World. You can also find him on the BBC and on the radio. Welcome, Tim. Hello. Hiya. We are so excited to have you on. My best friend right now is secretly throwing daggers at me saying, can't believe you've got them on. That's just the most amazing thing ever. So Linda, you're listening out there. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. <laughs> so how is lockdown? Lockdown is uh, kind of weird, isn't it? It's so weird. My hair is almost down to my knees. Now the garden is just sort of ridiculously overgrown. Uh, time has lost all meaning. Um, I'm going mad. Thank you. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, quite a lot. I think archaeologists are in the worst position right now because all of their digs have been cancelled. And w- what are they doing? They're sitting at home and not digging. Yeah, well, they can come dig my garden. <laughs> there we go. Any archaeologists listening and you're bored, you can head up and uh, dig Tim's garden for him. So, <laughs> Or you can come to Poland and do mine, you know, either way or we're, I think we'd both be quite happy. So we're going to talk about Greeks today, Greek history. So let's first of all start with who, well, who were the Greeks? Who were they? Well, if you ask, I remember Michael Gove talking about this and saying um, that uh, people these days don't know which came first, the Greeks or the Romans or the Egyptians or whatever. Uh, And people often think of the the ancient Greeks in those terms. They think of them as occupying a particular time slot um, before the Romans, after the Egyptians, that sort of thing. And of course, the the truth of it is completely different. The the, the, uh, peninsula, the Greek peninsula has been inhabited since the fourth millennium BC, probably before that. But, you know, the big migrations happened in the fourth millennium BCE. Um, then, you know, it's continuously inhabited, obviously, right up till, till the present day. So the Greeks are, you know, a, a huge number of people over a huge span of time. When we talk about the ancient Greeks, typically we mean Greeks from about 800 BC through to about 500 AD. These limits are, in a sense, arbitrary. You know, it's not as if they stopped being ancient on, you know, January the 1st, 501 uh, AD. Uh, but, you know, they're sort of useful ways of organising uh, thought, really. Uh, so the first, um, the reason we begin in the 8th century BC is 
for a number of reasons. One of them is Homer, basically. That's our earliest text of Greek literature, dates from around that sort of time. But we also get the uh, phenomenon of the city-state uh, emerging at that sort of time, when we get places like Athens, Sparta, Corinth, emerging with a particular type of uh, social makeup that is built around the idea of citizenship and inclusivity. And then they're not all, they don't all become democracies, but democracy as we understand it is very much a sort of outgrowth of that sort of city-state mentality. So, as I say, um, the Greeks as we understand them now, the ancient Greeks, are really, I suppose, defined by politics and by culture, the legacy of, of Homer, but also the legacy of, of artworks and you know, statues and vast paintings, that sort of thing. Very distinctive visual styles that... Um, that carried a strong sense of Greek identity. I should say actually just one thing about the, the word Greek, which is, um, is really a Latin word. The Greeks did use the word Greek, but very minimally. The Greeks themselves, modern Greeks, but also in antiquity called themselves a different word, which is Hellene. Ah, that's quite interesting because I have a question that uh, I think I'm going to start asking every every single classicist or more classicists that deal with uh, with with Greek history. Is the word panhellenism? Um, it's been a debate between um, classicists everywhere. Were the Greeks were they panhellenic? Well, first of all, what is panhellenism, and were they panhellenic? Because people suggest places like Delphi. Uh, were Panhellenic. Okay, so the word itself is composed of two elements, Pan and Hellenic. <laughs> um, the Hellenic bit, I've just explained, that, that means Greek. Pan means all. Uh, so we use the word Panhellenic to mean uh, places or sites or um, categories of thinking that cut across the city-state um, structure. So you, if you go to Athens and you ask, you know, what is your identity to somebody you meet, they would say an Athenian, probably. And if you go to Sparta, they'd say I'm a Spartan. But in a way, clearly, they participate in a wider Hellenism and a wider concept of Greekness. This isn't a passport carrying uh, culture. You know, there are no absolute boundaries of the Greek and the non-Greek and so forth. There are no firm ways of defining who is and who isn't Greek, but there is a loose sense of affiliation between all these deep, different Greek city-states. And I should say that actually there are many Greek city-states beyond the Greek peninsula as well in antiquity, in what's now Turkey, um, along the shores of the Black Sea, North Africa. They sent out lots of colonies as well, to southern Italy as well. So um, there are Greeks all over the place. And what unites them is, as I mentioned before, partly culture and politics, very distinctive ways of living one's life, but partly also other phenomena like religion, language, and a sense of shared descent. Um, and these can come differently into play at different times. Some people sometimes say shared descent, you know, we all descend from the same person, an original person called Helene, uh, who gives the name Hel Helene, of course, it's entirely made up, this genealogy. But that's one way of of articulating Pan-Hellenism, of the, the collective Greek identity. We're all descended from the same person. But there are many others, and people will put the accent on different sorts of things. Some people will say it's all about education, it's all about, you know, what you're brought up reading and understanding and so forth. And as you say, there are sites like Delphi and the uh, the Olympic Games, where the uh, 
um, which were held in the northern Pel Peloponnese. Uh, these, these are sites um, which are open to all Greeks, uh, so they have a, a significance that is more than local. They're, they're not just tied to that city-state, they're actually uh, have a wider significance. So uh, there's a guy called Alexander of Macedon, you may have heard of, uh, but it's not that Alexander, it's not Alexander the Great, it's um, one of his ancestors, uh, Alexander I of Macedon, actually, who pitched up at the Olympic Games, and um, because he's from Macedon, which is right at the north of the Greek Peninsula, there's a question over whether he's probably Greek or not. And they have these people called the Helano Dikai, the, the judges of Hellenism, who actually sort of have to convene and work out whether he is Greek or not. And uh, luckily for him, uh, they say, yes, okay, you know, you, you told a good story about your Hellenism, so you are Greek, so you can participate in these Pan-Hellenic games. Wow, I didn't realise there was a panel that would actually judge if you were <laughs> Greek or not. That is, that is incredible. That's a very, it's a very ancient Greek approach to things, actually. They were really into um, governance and, you know, everything, you know, they often had these sort of legal, quasi-legal arrangements and everything had to be sort of above board and visible and recorded and, you know, accountable and all that sort of thing. So, yes, even when it comes to identity, uh, I mean, that's a pretty extreme case. I think most, you know, it's, it's a wacky story and that's why I told it. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, they, they did. Are there any stories of uh, people that were denied on the panel? Talking about Pan-Hellenism, did, did the Greeks think of themselves as a unified people? Well, this goes back to the point about passports and passport carrying. Um, there is no mechanism for deciding whether one is or is not Greek. There is uh, for citizenship of a city-state, um, it's recorded, but it again goes back to the sort of governance thing. You know, the Greeks are obsessed. Greeks in each individual city-state have tallies and you know lists of people who are citizens, and you have to go through certain processes. You have to meet certain criteria to be a citizen. So that's all kind of cut and dried. And of course, you know, people go to court to try and argue that they are citizens when they're not treated. You know, but I mean, there are basically citizenship st status within the city-state is pretty well, pretty solidly defined. Uh, Hellenism, though, being Greek, is not at all solidly defined. So I mentioned the Macedonians, and they're a really good, interesting example because they really are on the border between, you know, the Greek world and the non-Greek world. The Greeks tend to think in particular that the further north you go into Europe, uh, weirdly, given, you know, how obsessed we are with European identity now, but the Greeks didn't think, they thought that was pretty barbarous space up north. So the Macedonians um, hover between the Greek and the non-Greek world. And they can be seen as Greek or not Greek, depending on circumstances. So the um, more famous Alexander, Alexander the Great, his dad, Philip II, when he was sort of um, uh, campaigning around Greece, there were Athenians, there was one Athenian who said, um, let's back him, let's, um, you know, he's a sort of, uh, Philip is a, a fantastic Greek, who we're going to back to go and beat the Persians, and then the Greeks will be triumphant in the, the world. And there was another Greek at exactly the same time saying, this is terrible barbarian, we need to resist him, we need to throw everything we can at him to try and stop him from um, taking over the Greek world. So the same person could be seen as Greek or non-Greek, depending on which side of the political fence you happen to sit at that particular time. So no, I mean, the Greeks... It, it's a hazy uni unity. It's a sort of, uh, an, uh, it's an asystematic approach to 
identity, very negotiable at the edges. And of course, the further away from the Greek peninsula you get, the more uncertain it is. Uh, in the Roman Empire, at the time of Hadrian, there was a thing called the Panhellenion, which was an institution which was actually designed to work out whether cities in far-flung places were actually Greek or not. And if they were, I mean, consequences flowed like tax um, benefits and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the way in which we've actually got uh, applications to the Pantolini on people sort of writing and saying, oh, can I be Greek, please, you know? Um, and it's really interesting the way that they construct it. Uh, one of them, for example, just has a sort of a long mythological story about how uh, Perseus, the, um, the legendary figure, dropped by in their particular area in central Turkey. And uh, I can't remember exactly, so it impregnated a few local people. And that was the origins of the city-state. Uh, and that's why they should be seen as, as Greek. And, but this, this was a successful petition to the Emperor Hadrian to, to have the Greekness of these people uh, acknowledged. Um, and there, as I come back to the point that the reason why people want Greekness is because of prestige and, you know, uh, um, particularly under the Romans, the Romans really value weakness. So it becomes some, a sort of form of identity that everyone wants in on. Can you, are there any examples um, of what would be required of you to be, for example, an Athenian citizen? Yeah, well, Athenian citizenship is really interesting and really horrid, actually. Um, in the middle of the 5th century, the period that everyone always thinks of as a kind of golden age of democracy and um, inclusivity and so forth, uh, except for women, except for slaves and so forth, um, and in that uh, era, about 451, uh, Pericles, who's another person that everyone uh, praises and lionises the whole time, including Boris Johnson, Pericles <laughs> passes, <laughs> um, passes this citizenship law, or uh, you know, persuades the Athenians to pass the citizenship law, which says that you have to have two Athenian parents to be a citizen. And when I say you, this is a male uh, Athenian child, because only men have citizenship, blah, 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 blah. But um, you have to have two bona fide uh, citizen parents in order to be an Athenian citizen, which is actually, it's like all of these things, you know, the more you think about it, the more kind of terrible it is because it's built around a myth of racial purity. Is the word, it's slightly anachronistic word, racial there, but, and it's built around this mythology which comes up around that sort of time that starts claiming that the Athenians are born from the soil of Athens itself, that the first Athenian was actually born in Athens uh, as part of the, you know, was born not of a mother, but born of the soil. Um, so all Athenians, subsequent Athenians, the claim is, are genetically descended from this first primeval Athenian. And the Athenians use this to distinguish themselves from other peoples, other city-states, uh, who don't have the same purity of bloodline and therefore are more degenerate. So it's, um, it is a archetypally, arch archetypically racist uh, way of constructing identity built around differentiation from others, built around exclusion of immigrants, built around myths of blood purity. And it won't surprise anyone that this, um, this belief system attracted the interest of the Nazis and they were very taken by this uh, Athenian way of constructing identity.
I was about to say that because while you were speaking, saying that both parents, both uh, parents had to be from uh, Athenian bloodline, I'm thinking, wow. All I can think of is the Third Reich racial purity laws that are just going through my mind. That if you had a Jewish mother or a father, for example, or grandfather, or even further back, that's it. You were you were classified as Jewish. It's it's very interesting that it goes so far back in history. And it has strong gender implications as well, actually, because um, alongside the sort of the exclusion of non-Athenians, the effect of this mythology are to devalue the role of women, because um, this is the famous French scholar called Nicole Loro um, wrote an awful lot of very persuasive, very influential stuff about this. Um, first of all, women aren't considered to be necessary for childbirth, because the first Athenian was born from the soil, not from a woman. Um, so the role of women is downgraded. They are they're, they're associated with matter rather than, if you like, the sort of the, the true essence of the human being. They just provide the, the soil, the substrate, rather than the actual identity of the person. But also it puts a lot of pressure on the idea of adultery. So we have all these dramas about people like Clytemnestra and in a different sort of way, Medea, uh, terrifying women who act with autonomy and agency, and in the case of Clytemnestra, um, um, commit adultery with another man. And this is a sort of, um, you know, we always say these are amazing works of literature, which they are, of course, amazing works of literature, and they're very complex, and they're not reducible to ideology. But at one level, they're about scary women, and, you know, what happens if you don't control your women enough, and if you don't keep them in the household, if you don't protect them from adulterers and so forth. So, as I say, there's a strong gender component to it as well. I don't think I'd like to be a woman uh, in Greek times. It sounds um, quite oppressive. So we've spoken about uh, Greek people, how they view themselves, but what did they think of others? I suppose all forms of identity are at some level differential forms of identity, aren't they? They're ways of saying we are this because we are not that. And it's often been pointed out that Greek, even the Greek language itself is very binary in its structures. It has particles that um, oppose this to that. It has forms of syntax that um, divide sentences into two. Um, the earliest forms of Greek verse, the hexameter verse in which uh, the Homeric poems were composed, um, every single line of them falls naturally into two. So the Greeks did think in this sort of very binaristic way and a lot of their early science and cosmology and medicine and so forth was built around oppositions between the hot and the cold the dry and the wet and so forth uh, so it was almost inevitable that greek identity would have come to be associated with um uh, this same binary mode of thinking and particularly in the fifth century uh, um Edith Hall has done a huge amount of work on this, very influential work, particularly in the 5th century, when the Persians have just been repelled. The Persians invade in the early 5th century uh, twice, and they're repelled, uh, and the Athenians assume leadership, de facto leadership, of much of the Greek world. And they say, we will provide the navy and the armies and will coordinate the armies and so forth to repel any further uh, Persian uh, incursions. So they start building up this um, sort of network of alliances, which is called the Delian League. Um, but very soon it becomes a sort of Athenian empire, sort of top-down Athenian um, uh, sort of monetizing 
venture, which is basically what pays for the Parthenon, the most famous building in the whole of Greece, that was uh, built as a treasury for the Delian League. And the Delian League's rhetoric is um, profoundly anti-Persian. And in this era, the word barbaros, which seems to originate as a sort of parody of uh, unintelligible language, uh, the word barbaros becomes almost exclusively applied to Persians. So Persians become the other in this period uh, and a sort of weaponized, leveraged other in order to try and shore up this increasingly um, hierarchical uh, Delian League thing with the Athenians at the top. So the Athenians are presenting themselves as the embodiment of Greekness and they present in opposition to the Persians. But of course, over time, uh, after the conquests of Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC, uh, when the Greek world expands hugely and goes into all sorts of other places, there are all sorts of other forms of otherness that emerge in really quite interesting ways. Uh, and But it's not just those other forms of otherness. Um, I'm using the word other too much here. But these other forms of otherness are sort of quite in- interesting and complex and tangled. And, um, you know, it's... So if you take Jews, for example, the Greeks sort of um, come into contact with Jews in the period after the uh, conquest of Alexander the Great. And their reaction is sometimes a sort of horrified um, aghastness at how odd and, you know, how sort of weirdly monotheistic these people are in the dietary laws. And sometimes there is a form of, there is a real admiration there as well. So... Uh, it's not a, a sim- simple story. The Greeks are, you know, have, amongst other things, have endless curiosities about other sorts of people. And there is a, a sort of relativism that you find in the Greek world from very early on. The historian Herodotus often embodies this idea that, you know, you think you do, um, you know, you, you, you think you, your customs are the best. But if you go to another place, you'll see that people do things in a completely different way. And in fact, actually, it's just about, you know, um, local perspective. Uh, if viewed at um, from above, uh, there is no culture that is better than any other culture. So you get all these sort of cross currents t- tensing against each other. There is this sort of sense of otherness and exclusion of barbarians and belief in Greek superiority. But as I say, that tenses against uh, other currents which are more universalistic and more cosmopolitan and more relativistic. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. How did they view the Romans? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. So the Greeks first come across, well, you know, Romans are mentioned quite early on in Greek literature, actually, almost from the start, or at least Italians are. Um, but the Romans sort of come onto the Greek radar in a serious way in the third century BCE. And the Romans, you know, um, proceed by sort of slow accretion of little bits of territory, often, you know, sort of bequeathed to them or negotiated by treaty and so forth. The image of the Romans as just conquerors who, you know, went in um, taking over everything militarily is, is very uh, simplistic. So as I say, the, you know, the, the Greeks in that era begin to, Come, become aware of uh, the Roman world. And in particular, in the second century, there's a lot of, I mean, actually, actual military conquest of Greek uh, territories in that sort of era. And there's, I mean, you would expect to see um, acres and acres and acres of screeds of anti-Roman polemic. And we have some, uh, we have, I mean, the, the amount of evidence that we have from the Greek world increases exponentially over time. So by the time we get to the second century BCE, um, and in particular, actually, into the period AD, we've got, you know, quite a lot of material. And as you would expect, there is a certain amount of anti-Roman feeling. But um, there is surprisingly little, actually. And that's quite hard to explain. I think the best way of explaining it is that, I mean, certainly our literary texts are written by the elite, and the elites are quite well looked after by the Romans. Uh, what Romans tended to do was to go into places and co-opt the local elites and get them to run the place rather than, uh, I mean, especially as the empire expanded, you don't have enough resources to uh, to have, um, uh, you know, sort of Romans, uh, native Romans everywhere. Uh, and the Romans also uh, are quite generous with Roman citizenship. They bestow it quite liberally and they don't, they're not like the Athenians and who uh, were very, jealously protective of their identity. The Roman, Roman citizenship is quite easily dispersed. So what the Romans tend to do is they tend to go into places, um, take them over, as I say, not always by military means, co-opt the local elites, make them Roman citizens. And then these people who are Greek are also Roman as well. So they're sort of compromised and party free. Um, my first book actually was about exactly this sort of thing. And it was about uh, the second century AD and the where there's the period from which we have most Greek literature, huge amounts of stuff there. Uh, and I was arguing, really, uh, it's a period of archaism where where Greeks are going around um, uh, obsessing with the past and uh, pretending that they were fifth century Athenians and uh, trying to speak in the, the same uh, dialect of Greek as as people in fifth century Athens and imitating a lot of literature and so forth. So my question was, why were people so obsessed with um, their roots, their, their sense of Greekness? And my answer was that actually it's all about Romanness. It's because these are Romans. <laughs> it's because these are people whose uh, um, identity is so compromised uh, and they're so sort of, you know, so they're kind of collaborateurs, if you like, you know, <laughs> uh, they're on the side of the Romans. And that's why they have to work so hard to prove their Greekness. I love that question. I just, it was, because uh, you spoke about all of the other, the other views, I was thinking, you haven't mentioned the Romans yet. 
And for me, looking at the relationship between the two, because again, I thought there would be so much more literature that would basically sell those those Romans, they're kind of barbaric a little bit. Us Greeks, we're, we're much better, we're a higher class of people. There's a bit, there is a bit of that. Um, but as I say, the majority of, of what you might call, I'll qualify this in a sec, but what you might call mainstream Greek literature um, isn't like that uh, from the Roman period. They, they, you know, they tend to represent Romanists as a kind of badge of honour and they tend to sort of parade relationships with rich Romans. They, they can look down on them in a rather snooty way as a sort of you know, upstart, um, less civilised, less ancient people. Um, but by and large, as I say, the, they're quite um, surprisingly pro-Roman in a very sort of crude sense. But the exception is, and the reason why that narrative gets more complicated, is that, I mean, if, as I do, you take a very broad view of what is Greek, and you say that anything written in Greek, for example, uh, is Greek, and um, you know that might be denied by some ancient Greeks, but some other ancient Greeks would would accept um, many different would have a broader view of what what counts as Greek. So where I get where I'm pushing towards here is that you know if you include Jewish literature written in Greek, or if you include early Christian literature, then you get a very different perspective on these things. And I think you should include that stuff because I think. A lot of these people, you know, even if you're Jewish, you can call yourself Greek as well. I mean, people can can concatenate identities in the ancient world. You don't have to be Jewish or Greek. You can be Jewish, Egyptian, Roman, and Greek simultaneously, and that's fine. You know, so as I say, if you if you look at it from that perspective, and you think about um, Christians and Jews, and of course we have quite a lot of their literature as well, uh, then you can see a sort of pioneering, sort of anti-Roman, anti-imperialist narrative emerging but again it's sort of it's quite interestingly different from what you might expect in the modern world Mm. Uh, talking about other people staying on that topic did they actually have a concept of well race well our concept of race is a is you know i mean it's a it's a it has its roots really in the 19th century and in the both the you know the sort of the politics of that era in terms of empire um transatlantic slave trade um and um also in racial pseudoscience and you know the belief that uh, different types of people were different orders of humanity and sometimes you know some people thought that the human race wasn't even unified that there were different species within the the human uh, uh sort of framework Whatever. So the, that that concept of race emerges from a very specific uh, historical context that is not replicated in the ancient world. They don't have, for example, an obsession with skin colour in classical antiquity. Of course, um, Greeks and Romans knew people with all sorts of different pigmentations, but they didn't think of these as sort of definitive in um, the way in which you carved up the, the human species. So, uh, but on the other hand, they did have an idea of shared descent, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which gives us the word, um, the Greek word is genos, which gives us the word uh, genealogy, and genetics and that sort of thing, the gen bit of it. Uh, and a genos uh, is sometimes translated as a race because it is often used of um, a people who are united by 
uh, a sort of family relationship to each other. They're, they're genealogically united, if you like. Um, and that's a sort of a race-like concept. And of course, just as with modern races, uh, you know, it, it is a fiction. Agenos is, is, you know, you can never have a sort of a family model extended to include an entire community. There are too many, it's too complex and too weird and too fuzzy in practice. But that, that idea that a, a community might be an extension of a single family is a, uh, an ancient Greek idea as well. And there's, this is um, partly why modern ideas of race have these sort of genetic or genealogical components, of course, because a lot of the architects of modern racism were reading classical material as well. I think we should move over to something that's, uh, for now, as in current, current day sort of politics. So why, well, first of all, we're going to start with statues. So why do people in our modern world get so upset about the, well, the colour of ancient statues? This, is, this has blown up um, massively in the last 10 years or so. I mean, it's a really fascinating phenomenon. Uh, so just to put some context on here, um, we've known for a long time, in fact, in, since the 18th century, that some ancient statues were painted. And the early discussions around this were largely aesthetic. They were, um, people got terribly worried about painted statues because they, there was a sort of a cult of, you know, the purity of marble and so forth. Um, uh, Winkelmann and you know all these sort of eighteenth century aesthetes are all uh, on about you know how, how gaudy it would have been to have had painted statues. Um, in more recent times, we have because nowadays we can do scientific uh, chemical tests on statues and we can discover traces of pigmentation and that sort of thing. So, al although this work is only really in, the, in its infancy, and we don't know about the extent of painting of statues, and indeed temple architraves and so forth, you know, architectural features, um, which seem to have been painted as well. We, do, we don't know how much of it was actually painted uh, in any sort of firm sense, but it's clear that a lot more was painted than um, it appears visible today. And it's very, very evidently clear. And what's behind a lot of the anxiety about this is of course racism. The idea of the Greeks as white has been so hardwired into a certain strain of European and European descended thinking in the last 150 years that these statues have become iconic of uh, Greek and European whiteness. We are a visual people, you know, we, we, we attach emotions and suggestions and associations to visual impressions. We all know what a Greek statue looks like, or at least we think we do, and that image is, in very subtle ways, uh, ingrained in all of our minds. When you think of a Greek statue, you think of a white Greek statue, often against a blue sky, offsetting that whiteness. And that is not a neutral colour, um, white, uh, and it hasn't been for the last, you know, however many, a few hundred years. Whatever. Whiteness is actually a sort of an invisible um, mythology uh, that we don't talk about enough, uh, so when people have started pushing the idea that we should be thinking about statues by default as polychrome, as coloured, this um, upset an awful lot of people. Um, and it upset an awful lot of people who were racist or are racist, but it also upset a lot of people who had sort of unexamined atta attachments to uh, the myth of classical whiteness or whatever, which is a sort of more subtle or um, 
ingrained form of racism. They may not sort of it as a racist belief, but it was sort of, you know, connected to a deep cultural racism. I need to say that I was one of those people, I always thought the Greek statues were supposed to be white. So, you know, you go to the British Museum, they're all white. But then we took a trip one day at university and we went to the Ashmolean. And the Ashmolean, if I'm being correct on this, I think it's a statue of Augustus. Um, and they've got a... In the Porter statue, yeah. Yeah, so it's the statue of Augustus where it's, it's completely white. And then they painted uh, a copy, basically. And you can see all of these incredible bright colours and it makes you completely think differently about what statues really look like. Because in reality, you're going to go to a temple or somewhere and statues are white. Well, why would they be? You know, you'd want more colour, you'd want more uh, attractiveness, if that's the right way of saying it. I think that's right. And I think we have to remember, as you say, where, where they're displayed. I mean, in the interior of buildings, and there's often not a lot of light, so you do need colour to pick them out. Um, if you want to, if you have a statue and you want it to be visible from a long way off, then yeah, colour is a really good way of marking that. I mean, I have to say that the jury is out on, I mean, for the reasons I've given, uh, we just haven't done the chemical analysis of all statues, and many statues may not have residues of paint on them anyway, because they may have been cleaned or the paint may have just disappeared. So we don't actually know yet the extent of the painting of, statues uh, but it is a very powerful profound challenge to as i say some very deeply ingrained narratives so in your opinion does the subject of classics need to be colonized yeah um classics has been uh, i mean is very much a sort of 19th century as i as i teach it now and as um you know as most um Anglophone universities teach it. I say I teach it. My university teaches it, and most Anglophone universities teach it. is very much a product of the nineteenth century, and it carries with it a lot of the sort of assumptions in that era. Um, I mentioned earlier that you know we tend to think of the classical world as stopping around five hundred, maybe actually a little bit earlier before that. Why is that? Well, it's all to do with Christianity. It's because um, of a sort of turf war between theology and classics. Uh, so in the, in the 19th century, when classics and theology sort of split apart, the theologians got the, the Christian period and the classicists got the period up to that. Now that's not a neutral way of, of um, thinking about things. That's a, a very obviously Christian influenced way of carving up time and therefore creating meaning out of antiquity. But you were asking about decolonization and that really goes in um, that's more of a kind of geographical I issue at one level. It's about sort of, you know, what kind of areas we value and what kind of cultures we value. I mean, I mentioned earlier that the Greeks are so heavily associated with myths of European pure ancestry. And, you know, the idea that we culturally or genetically, you know, that's a big we in inverted commas, culturally or genetically descend from the Greeks is so thoroughly enshrined in people that, that that has sort of lent a kind of value to the classical. You might be worth pausing to think a little, a little bit about what the classical actually means. It comes from a, um, a Roman economic term marking uh, the highest level of tax band in society. They're the people that can contribute, the classic E are the people that contribute to the classis, to the upkeep of the fleet. Okay, so it's got elitism 
it's got selection built into the concept right from the very start, right from the get-go. And the lionization of imperial cultures, classical Athens, uh, Augustan Rome, whatever, is all tied up with um, empire. Uh, if you look at school books from the 19th century and from the 20th century, uh, a lot of the texts that are chosen are for translation for kids, you know, supposedly to teach them constructions and that sort of thing. A lot of the passages are about conquering foreign peoples and enslaving them and so forth. There's a lot of tacit learning about how to be uh, an imperial power that comes through the classical world. I would say, though, I mean, I wouldn't be doing this subject if I didn't think that, it, that there was something more to it than that. And I think there is something more to it than that. I think that uh, there's always, it's always been a sort of, the imperial sort of colonial aspect of classics um, has, um, you know, doesn't define or restrict everything that is done within the field. And if you think about something like, you know, the late 19th century when people were beginning to dig stuff up and archaeology became, uh, you know, a key constituent part of the classical uh, discipline in universities, then people's views of the ancient world would change radically and they were driven by um, material evidence and the evidence came up and people had to take account of it. And they realised that these people that they thought of as sort of very high-minded uh, people, very intellectual people actually, who had all sorts of other preoccupations. And there was all sorts of other weirdnesses at the level of you know religion and daily life and practice and so forth that really disrupted people's sense of what the Greeks were like. Uh, anthropology also in the uh, late 19th and throughout the 20th century had a huge impact on classics. People borrowed methodologies from anthropologies which were developed uh, to, I mean, perhaps also with an equally imperial uh, aspect to them as well, but were developed to help understand non, um, non-Greek peoples. And they used them to help understand uh, the Greeks. And increasingly, uh, I think the Greeks were seen throughout the 20th century through this anthropological lens, not as ancestors of a putative European people, but as a strange bizarre people who needed to be understood um, in all of their bizarreness and oddity and otherness. So there are all these cross currents within the classical world. It's, it, is, it, it isn't straightforwardly a, um, a colonial imperial uh, an, um, discipline. It is a, a big capacious discipline. But you're asking, does the subject have to decolonize? I say, yes, yes, it does. Um, I think we are still teaching a very restricted view of the ancient world, which is built around um, elitism, built around class values, built around uh, power and authority, and not exposing enough, I think, the the variety of peoples in the ancient world. Um, I mean, I mentioned earlier a bit of my hobby horse of mine about sort of including Jews and Christians within that narrative of the classical world. We, we teach Greek and Latin, but we don't teach in classics departments. We don't teach Egyptian or Akkadian. We have huge amounts of material in both of those languages. The neighbouring peoples, they had a lot to do with Greeks and Romans. Some very pioneering scholars have done a lot of work on you know, trying to bring these together, but it's very hard to do when your disciplinary structures are restricting the study of the Mediterranean, pouring resource uh, into the study of the Greeks and the Romans as if they were in isolation from or superior to all the other peoples around them at the time. So I, I would 
but push very strongly. If I had a, uh, a blueprint for classics in the 21st century, I would push for understanding other languages, understanding other cultures in antiquity, a more sophisticated understanding of methodologies, um, a more sophisticated understanding of the diversity of identities and different peoples in antiquity. And I would put this at the forefront of the curriculum, not make it something that people, you know, can do in their PhDs if they really want to do. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today to be able to talk about Greek identity, how the Greeks viewed other people, how the Greeks viewed the Romans, how they viewed themselves, the superiority, obviously, of, of the Athenians, as always, and um, probably my favourite point uh, about the ancient statues. So thank you so much. And we'll definitely get you back on to talk about some Greek literature. Greek literature so thank you so much. Yeah, really good to meet you. Join us tomorrow when Gabby's story will be here. She is brilliant. She came on and we talked medieval badass queen. So we've compared and contrasted Queen Matilda and Eleanor of Aquitaine, who received many, many votes in our Greatest Britain poll. So join us to find out how they were similar, how they differed, and about some of the just insanity that they had to deal with. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.